0: Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. My name's Christine Murray, Uh, Good morning. Thanks everyone for attending. I'm in my kitchen having evicted my small children and my husband because I thought it was appropriate for this talk about food in place for me to be uh, at what is now often the heart of uh, and buzz of all activity in the home, which might indeed happen if uh, my husband doesn't manage to entertain our three children. It's really a pleasure to host our first uh, Festival of Place size. We always wanted to do some digital events uh, and I was really glad to to partner up with you and I I think um, both of us aim to challenge the way we think about making places and to do this by bringing uh, groups of people together um, who normally maybe meet around the project team meeting, but maybe not enough to brainstorm um, outside of the deadlines and pressures about how we should change the way we live um, and how we should build our future places. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of The Developer and I'm Director of the Festival of Place which is an annual congress that aims to break down silos and bring professionals together um, in order to talk about placemaking and how to make places worth living in. Uh, we're making an announcement this morning. We've uh, moved our date because we were originally on the 7th of July, but I'm announcing this morning we've changed the date to the 13th of November for reasons I don't need to go into uh, more than that. Um, so, uh, this morning we're going to talk about how our places have been shaped by food. Um, and I think, you know, um, the format for this morning is we're going to have a uh, a lecture or a talk by, by Carolyn, the author of Zootopia. And then we're going to have a Q&A for those of you who would like to um, ask questions. And then um, we're going to observe that minute of silence at 11 o'clock, if, if, if um, my panelists can help me um, do that. And, uh, and then we will um, send out a link to a, another chat, because we can't do this in the webinar format, to another zoom meeting which i'll be sharing uh, the code for um, and then um, that will enable us to go into a zoom meeting where we can break into smaller groups and you can network that part of the day is optional but hey you might enjoy it i think our ambition is to put people into groups uh, two groups of four or five so that you can meet some new people who are here so uh, that's going to happen at the close of the event and it's an opportunity to just network as best as we can in, uh, in, in digital times, but we think of it as the kind of bit where you end up standing in a little group at the coffee chat afterwards. So um, finally, we're a small independent company now that run the developer in the festival place. Um, we, um, we recently launched on Patreon, so you can support us if you want. It's uh, The Developer UK. And I'm really pleased this morning to be joined by Martin Evans, the creative director at Developer UNI. And I'm going to pass over to him now. um, And he's going to talk about why this is so interesting in uh, in property development um, and introduce today's speaker, um, Carolyn Steele. Martin.
1: Thanks Christine. Hello Carolyn. Uh, So I'm not going to talk for very long because you didn't come here to listen to me this morning, you came here to listen to the great Carolyn Steele. Um, So Carolyn and I met six or seven years ago. We met when we were um, both concerned about the uh, potential uh, damage to Smithfield Market in central London by the redevelopment proposals that were put before the City of London's Planning Committee. Uh, my colleague Richard Upton uh, had got very exercised about it and decided he wanted to help. And so we um, joined forces with a group of committed, interesting people to try to fight the development proposals. And after a long and relatively bloody battle through the uh, Planning Inspector's uh, process, we won. And uh, through that time, um, I spent time talking to Carolyn and we got to know each other very nicely afterwards. And I read uh, this wonderful book um, that I have to say is one of the most uh, interesting and amazing books I've ever read. Because, of course, when you start the reading the introduction to that book, let alone dive into the first chapter, Carolyn sets out her thesis before you. Um, and it's one of those moments when you just get one of those Duh! moments that you can't believe you have never thought about these things before, um, that the entire history of cities and their development are shaped by food. And of course, because it's one of the very small number of things that we have to do, absolutely all of us, all day, every day, is eat in order to survive. And how we eat in order to survive has shaped how our cities and towns and villages have been built over the thousands of years that they've been in development and so how can we possibly think about the future of our cities and places we build without thinking about how we will feed the people who are going to live in them and it was a revelation to me to think about development in that way and so as a developer, as a, as a uh, somebody who works in a company who, take, who takes uh, empty bits of land and turns them into communities and places where people live and work and play. Um, we put right at the centre of our thinking how we think about how those people are going to eat and be fed and where they're going to buy their food and where they're going to eat it and where they're going to dispose of what's left. Um, It's transformational. Uh, Jane Jacobs talked about it in this, uh, another one of my favourite books. Uh, And this book is an awful lot about the relationship between cities and uh, the countryside where most of the food is grown. But of course, we're here today because now there is this, uh, which is Carolyn's next new book that just came out and uh, continues her thinking um, and is, uh, I would say, uh, Equally fascinating, not a little bit scary, about um, what's going to happen to us if we don't think carefully about where our food comes from and how we use it. So I'm going to stop now. Just really, all I wanted to say about Carolyn this morning is that um, talking to her has been one of the greatest pleasures of my um, career, and thinking about what we do in terms of her work has really made me think differently about life and work. So um, I hope. All of you will enjoy, as much as I know I'm going to, me handing over to Carolyn to tell us what's next, Carolyn.
2: <laughs> um, thank you so much for that very, very kind introduction, Martin. I've been blushing away. I'm not sure if the screen kind of shows shows it up or not. And many, many thanks as well to Christine for hosting us. So um, without further ado, I am indeed going to attempt, in the next half an hour, eek to... Um, the sp- Try to sort of show you how food indeed has shaped our lives over history, um, and continues to do so, and how it can be the most amazing, connective tool for thinking about the way we live in the future. So I'm going to now attempt to share my screen with you. I say attempt, but you know I have done this before, so this ought to work, really. And um, and crack on. Says um, something. Is that looking good to you? You can see me in the screen. Hurrah! Um, yeah, so I'm going to explain a little in a little bit what this word Zootopia, which my new book is called, means. Um, it means food place, by the way. But I'll explain how I came to make this word up and and what its what its roots are. Um, but essentially, I'm going to begin with this image, which for me is the most uh, life changing and also complete image that describes the question I guess I learned how to ask about 20 years ago. Um, and the question ultimately is, uh, what is a good life? And I guess that's the, the basic question that we're always asking as architects and developers. We're trying to make places for people to live that are going to foster good communities, happy people, uh, and all the rest of it. it. At its root, there is a kind of utopian drive, if you like. Um, And in that spirit, as an architecture student, I remember going to the wonderful city of Siena and visiting the town hall there and seeing this incredible image. I don't know, some of you probably know this. It's quite a famous image. Um, Ambrogio Lorenzetti's allegory of the effects of good government, which sits on one side of the town hall in Siena. Um, And it's an extraordinary image, as I say. But when I was an architecture student looking at it, all I really saw was a city and a landscape and a kind of slightly puzzlingly, you know, big red wall in the middle. And I was moved and I studied it for a while and then I wandered off. Um, And now, kind of, you know, 30 to 40 years later, I find it really puzzling that I didn't look at this image and immediately see that it's all about food. Um, And this is one of the phenomena about food is that it's so powerful in our lives, it's so omnipresent, but it's actually too big to see. So again, if you look at this image with your sort of um, food brain switched on, you can see that, of course, it's about the fundamental relationship in urban civilization, which is the relationship between the city on the one hand and the countryside on the other. Um, so the countryside feeds the city. But it's a sort of mutual symbiotic balance between the two. And if you look in detail, you can see huntsmen leaving the city to maybe go and shoot a boar. You can see asses coming into the city with grain on their backs, a pig being driven to market. Obviously, people working very diligently in the fields. In a landscape, it should be said that if you go to Siena now and look out of the window of this council chamber, it looks very similar. It's an artificial landscape that is sort of shaped to feed the city. And then inside the city as well, you see a flock of sheep wandering around, a woman with a basket of eggs on her head and so on. Um, and then you look again at the title of the piece, The Allegory of the Effects of Good Government. And then a big penny drops. Well, as I say, it took me about 30 years for this penny to drop. But anyway, um, the penny is that the biggest job that we have, you know, or city leaders have, is to maintain this balance between the urban and the rural, without which... There is no urban civilization. Now, of course, today we don't look out of our windows and see the landscape that feeds us. It's often thousands of miles away. Um, and I call this the urban paradox. And uh, I'll explain this concept um, because it really comes out of what Laurencetti teaches us. So basically, we talk of ourselves as living in cities and we think of ourselves as urban. If you open a newspaper, you'll probably see some headline about, you know, more than, more than 70% of humans projected to be urban by 2050 and all this sort of thing. And it's true that more and more of us are living in cities. But what is often not spoken about is where is the hinterland, the farmland, the productive countryside without which urban lives wouldn't be possible? Um, because that balance still has to exist. And, of course, because the landscapes that feed us are now thousands of miles away, this this balance is kind of mentally distant to us and and we're physically distant from the people who feed us. Now, the paradox is that there's no ideal solution to this because you can't feed a city from within itself, and I'll come on and talk about that a bit more, um, because cities and countryside co-evolved. Now. You know, on the surface, this seems to work pretty well. I mean, we're very used to wandering into a supermarket and seeing insane amounts of food on show. Um, and, you know, that, that's basically quite a miracle in itself if you think about the fact that, you know, a city like London, for example, needs enough food for 30 million meals to be produced, transported, traded, cooked, eaten and then disposed of every day. You know, it is an extraordinary achievement to feed cities, Um, And as I say, until kind of about six weeks ago, it looked like it was all going fairly swimmingly if you didn't look deeper under the surface. Um, But then, of course, this happened. Uh, This is my local supermarket in London. Um, And I think it was a great shock to people. I mean, I think this was the first moment when many people woke up to the fact that this illusion of effortless plenty that we've got so used to is actually an illusion. Now, the question of how to eat, as Martin said in his lovely introduction, is a fundamental question. In fact, I would go as far as to say that the shared question of how to eat is really the one around which we humans evolved as a species. Um, I love this picture of the Hadza in Tanzania, one of the very few groups of people who still live, uh, as we all used to, our ancestors used to, as hunter-gatherers. And there's lots and lots of things that you can understand from this image, the first of which is... But the business of feeding ourselves has always had something to do with technology. So the invention of tools and then very, very critically, how to control fire is fundamental to how we evolved as a species. Um, What cooking allowed us to do was to get calories on board much more rapidly, which allowed us to risk spending more time hunting, which is a, a high risk, but high gain strategy for feeding yourself. And what would happen, and this may seem like too much detail, but it it is profoundly important. Women would stay in the camp and they would hunt for tubers and then cook those as the kind of backup meal while men used to go hunting. And then the shared meal, and so you could say, you know, you hunt, I cook, was, you know, the first human social contract in the world. And then the shared meal in the evening, which was effectively made up of what everyone had managed to produce during the day, is effectively the world's first economy. And I would also say it's uh, most uh, effective, visible, flexible, and fair. So we evolved through the sharing of food. Um, And, you know, as I say, (laughs) everything and yet nothing has changed about this because the shared meal is still absolutely basic, not just to how we solve the problem of eating together, but how we learn to listen, to collaborate, Um, and to socialise. It is the ultimate civilising act. Now, our solutions to how to eat have also profoundly shaped the places we've lived. Now, you know, this is one of the wonderful renditions of the imagined pre-history before cities when people used to, as I like to put it, live in the larder. In other words, people used to just wander around the countryside, pulling fruit off trees, obviously not always as faithfully as in this case, uh, hunting animals, and then they would deplete a territory they would move on somewhere else, and then maybe come back in the course of a couple of years or something. so it was basically living in a place that could feed you, um, but then round about uh, ten to twelve thousand years ago, and actually the book that Martin showed you in the introduction, Jane Jacobs is extremely interesting on this question of you know, how cities and agriculture co-evolved and which came first and all the rest of it. I clearly don't have time to go into that today. But suffice it to say that um, planting grain in the ground, uh, which is a a way of feeding ourselves that our ancestors came up with uh, in response to the last major climate change the world faced, i.e. the last ice age, is a very different proposition because basically you put the grain in the ground and then you have to protect it and stay put and wait for it to be ripe and then harvest it and get there before an antelope nibbles it or something. So you get the evolution of static settlements um, and with it over the course of time, um, you know, settlements that are complex enough to be called cities like this one. I should have shown you my fertile crescent diagram, but there you are. This is the problem of trying to cram a lot into half an hour. Never mind. This is at the top of the Persian Gulf uh, in what is now Iraq, what was once Mesopotamia, um, <clears throat> on the confluence of two major rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates. So it's one of the first cities ever built in the world, and what we immediately notice about it is that it's very small and very compact. Um, so this little area of residential space here, that would have filled the whole uh, area inside the walls. Um, and then this large complex here, the temple complex, would have been where the, uh, the city elders not only administered the sort of the, the spiritual life of the city, but also the administrative life, uh, primary among which was the gathering in of the harvest. So the temple organized the gathering in of the harvest, um, offered the grain up to the gods in the ziggurat, stored it in the temple granary baked it in the temple bakery and then redistributed it through the city through the course of the year so in modern terminology if we were going to describe how the first cities on earth fed themselves we would say that they had large centralized food distribution hubs in essence and also that they were city states in other words they were blobs of urbanity surrounded by countryside um, and this is an extraordinarily um, successful model. It was one that all ancient cities replicated in one way or another, <coughs> including Athens, the home of Plato and Aristotle. <coughs> Excuse me. And you can see Aristotle here, uh, the city of Athens, his home on the right, which is actually a polis or a city-state. And Plato and Aristotle were among the first people to sort of think about the question of how we should dwell Um, as political animals, this term that um, Aristotle comes up with, which I find incredibly helpful because it explains the urban paradox that I mentioned earlier. The fact that we have a sort of essential duality as humans. We're political, which means we need to gather together, which is why we build cities and so on. But we're also animals, which means that we get our sustenance from nature. And as I say, you know, the question of how we should dwell as humans really comes down to the question of what is the ideal habitat for a political animal? And both Plato and Aristotle came up with the answer that the city should remain small. And the reason for this was, as you just saw in in the city of Ur, that basically if the city is small, it can feed itself from its local hinterland. Uh, and for both Plato and Aristotle, this was the ideal. Um, they called it oikonomia, as you can see at the bottom here. Oikonomia um, means household management, from oikos, home, and nomos, management. Um, and if the word sounds familiar, it may it may sound a little bit familiar. It's actually because it's it forms the basis of our modern word for economics. Um, which is slightly ironic because actually Aristotle warned explicitly against what we now do in economics, which is trying to make as much money as possible, which he said could never bring happiness because you can never have enough money. Whereas with economia, the idea is that you reach a balance. And so the idea is that every citizen has a house in the, com- in the city and a farm in the countryside and the farm feeds the house. And so if every citizen has this arrangement, then the state, after a certain point, becomes self-sufficient once it's got enough people in it to do all the various things that need to be done—you know, tool making, shoe repairing, etc.—then it can be a self-sufficient entity. And at that point, it becomes the ideal size of a city. Um, and actually, the Greeks did this when when cities got too big; they just kind of went, "You, you, and you—you you go off and found a city somewhere else." Uh, and I'm going to have to radically speed up. I already see anyway. So. Um, As I say, most ancient cities follow this model, but one very, very famously did not. It was Rome. The city of Rome had a million citizens by the first century AD. And so the question arises, how did this city feed itself? And I normally like to have a little quiz at this point, but unfortunately, I don't think we've got time, but just try and work out in your mind as I slowly go to the next slide, how did Rome eat? And the answer is it did it through food miles. So we think of food miles as a modern phenomenon, but actually they're not. In fact, the only way Rome could have fed itself, uh, you know, with a city that size, was to have access to the sea, because it was about 50 times cheaper to transport food over the sea than overland in the ancient world. Um, so it sequentially conquered Sicily, Sardinia, Carthage, and then Egypt, very rich grain-producing regions, because grain was the food of cities, always was, uh, always, and, and remains so today. And then the grain ships coming up from Alexandria became the sort of supertankers of their day. And also, as you can see from this map, it would have been very difficult for another city the size of Rome to have existed at its height in this region, because it was sucking in nutrients from all over the Mediterranean, the Black Sea, and the North Atlantic coast, even importing oysters from uh, Britannia at a certain point. Um, so you can see from this map that even in the ancient world, it was possible that the feeding of cities had a profound effect, on landscapes uh, hundreds if not thousands of miles away. Now the first person to analyse the productive hinterland of the city was Johann von Thunen. He wrote a book in 1826 called The Isolated State uh, and he sort of basically asked the question, if a city is sitting in a flat, fertile plain, how would its productive hinterland naturally evolve? And he said, well on the outskirts you would have market gardening because Fruit and vegetables are very difficult to transport a long distance, so they have to be grown near the city. They were a luxury food, so basically uh, the farmers could afford the high land rent. And also they could make very good use of night soil, which was human and animal manure that was saved as a very precious thing and dumped on the land to make it more fertile. So fruit and veg in the city fringes. Then something like a 20 to 30 mile band of uh, mixed production, including crops. So grain, the most important food of the city, was also ironically very cheap in relation to its bulk and therefore beyond a range of about 30 miles, it was uneconomic to bring it in by land, which limited the size to which the city could grow. Um, and then on the outskirts, you have livestock production because, of course, the animals can provide their own transport into market. Um, and the only concession that Jan Fontaine made to geography was to say that if the city was on a navigable river, then the bands could be a lot further away because you could take the food to the river and then get it into the city much more easily. Um, now, I normally have a long historical interlude at this point, um, because it's very, very fascinating if you apply Fontaine, and he's a little bit dull, kind of in the abstract, but really fascinating when you apply him to all cities, uh, to this example of London on the left, the River Thames, the Legal Keys, and Paris on the right, the River Seine, the port au which is the main grain port. Um, and again, I'd like to have a little quiz at this point. If you can identify a key difference between these two images, um, and I'll give you the answer, <laughs> sparing the agony. Uh, the Thames is navigable by ocean-going ships. So basically these uh, ships have come in from you know, places like the Baltic and maybe the Mediterranean. London never struggled to feed itself. The Seine is not. The Seine was not navigable, and therefore the city had to impose its will on the region And the king became the baker of last resort, responsible for feeding people. And I'm just going to ask you the question, um, which of these two cities became the centre of a revolution? Um, And again, as I say, I'm summarising a rather long, very fascinating story, but geography and politics through the lens of food are deeply, deeply connected. And by the way, it was Paris, in case any of you don't know the answer to that one, I'm sure you all do. So, um, English kings and queens never took responsibility for feeding people. In fact, if we look at these wonderful maps from the uh, 16th century in London, here is the city, lots of ocean going ships coming in, as I showed you just now, very merrily feeding itself. Here's Westminster, kind of totally out of the picture, uh, whereas in Paris, the Louvre on the Hotel de Ville were right on top of the food supply. And we can also see that, that food in the ancient world not only shaped landscapes a long way from the city, but also inside the city. So if we look at the corn map, the yellow map, this is grain coming into London. It's coming mostly by river because it's heavy and bulky, so it's water transport bringing it in to the main river ports, the Queen Hive and Billingsgate. It's trying to get up to Cornhill here to be traded, and it's being traded on the way, as you can see from the names of the streets, for example, Bread Street in this case. If I go to Fish, same story, it's coming in by river, obviously. Uh, You probably know that Billingsgate, London's fish market, remained trading on the same site uh, until the 1980s. Um, And as Martin said in his introduction, again, I mean, the longevity of foodways is is very, very fundamental to the structure of cities. Indeed, markets often predate cities themselves because it's very difficult to interrupt the food system for obvious reasons. People have to eat every day. So Fish Street, Friday Street is where you bought your fish on a Friday when the eating of meat was forbidden. And then if we look at the the meat map, as it were, of course the animals are walking into the city, so they're not coming in by river, Um, often from places as far afield as Scotland and Wales. They're coming to a smooth field outside Newgate where they could could gather, and of course that became Smithfield, uh, London's uh, main meat market for the last 1,100 years, and now very, very sadly about to close, which I'm sure Martin and I are very, very upset about. Because food spaces in cities are much, much more than just places to pick up your kind of, you know, your latte. They are actually fundamental to the city's public life, to the place in, in history where people used to gather to discuss, to make news, to protest, to celebrate. I mean, they are the sort of the beating heart of the public space of the city. They used to be very bound up with food as well. Indeed, they were often the only open spaces in the city, much as the temple in Ur was the only open space as well. Um, And if we look at this image of Smithfield Market when it was still a livestock market in the 1830s, I think you can get some sense of the vibrancy of it and the fact that this really was the beating heart of the city. Of course, it was not without its problems. There were 184 unregulated slaughterhouses around Smithfield where the animals were killed. I've really got to speed up. Anyway, so but the thing is that the, uh, the food is visible. It's in the same spaces as the humans and etc. until the, the railways come along. And now everything changes. And I am going to go at the speed of a railway now because I think I've got about another seven minutes to do more than half the talk. Um, three major things change when the railways come. The first is that for the first time, food can tra- travel long distances very rapidly. So cities are emancipated from geography for the first time. The second thing is that food now becomes invisible because it's no longer traveling down the same spaces as people. And last but very much not least, politicians are no longer responsible for feeding people. They give over the power to the food industries. And these are massive issues that we're still struggling with today. Here, visually, you can see very easily how London goes from being not much bigger than its medieval counterpart uh, when the railways come to becoming a small, sprawling metropolis that you couldn't possibly have just walked to the you know markets to buy your fresh food in so new food systems were already required you can see how the rural hinterland is also rapidly transport uh, transformed in the space of a decade less than a decade actually the american great west goes from being grassland uh with bison about 60 million bison are thought to have roamed there with native americans they're decimated with machine guns from the tops of trains. Um, the, America, the Native Americans are banded off to reservations. Uh, nothing is done with the meat or the skins. They just pile up the skulls and stand on top posing. But what we do have is the creation of the world's first vast monocultural grain production, producing a grain blot. And again, my normal little quiz that I like to ask people is, what do you do with grain when you've got more of it than you can eat? feed it to animals. So it's the invention of cheap meat, cheap industrial meat. So this is the Chicago union stockyards where there were up to 18 million animals at one time, fed up on grain, which by the way, makes them sick because cows are ruminants. They're designed to eat grass. Uh, if, they, if you feed them on grain, they, they, they like it, but it's like feeding your kids on kind of popcorn. They, they, they get sick. Um, and And their meat stops being as nutritious anyway that's a whole other story um, but the uh, the packers at the back there they became the sort of the inventors really of the modern food system. They invented their own logistical chains to get their food chill chains with you know railway carriages with ice in to get the meat to the east coast, where they undercut local butchers and really took over the market. so you get the beginning of vast consolidation in the food system. You also get the beginnings of uh, the ecological warnings that this way of feeding us isn't a very good idea. So this is the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma. Of course, if you go from grassland to annual crops of monoculture with a very thirsty crop like corn, this is what happens to the soil. Um, So it's the beginning of a debate that's still raging today about how we should feed ourselves, industrial on the left hand. Justus Liebig was the brilliant German chemist who first worked out that plants needed nitrogen, potassium and phosphorus, NPK. The Haber-Bosch process is how we fix atmospheric nitrogen to create ammonia and it's the basis of the nitrogenous chemical fertilizers that feed about 40% of the global population. But, 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 it's also destroying the planet and on the right hand side we have Albert Howard who's known as the father of the modern organic movement. Uh, who argued, no, 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 we have to farm with the living soil, and rather than dumping chemicals on it, which weakens the plants, it's like feeding your kids on fast food, we need to encourage and allow the mycorrhizal connections between plant roots and soil fungi that are the basis of real nutrition and all the micronutrients coming into the plant. Um, There's a sort of uh, survey thing in the front of my face, which I'm going to get rid of, I don't know whether... (laughs) Anyway, Albert Howe was actually winning that argument, but then the war came and the war, of course, and it's very interesting, the parallels with COVID um, was all about growing as much as you possibly could. So the chemical argument won, and then after the war, the old munitions factories were redeployed into the chemical industry. Of course, after the war, um, it was all about the good life. And I, as I say, the, the question of how we should dwell is always deep down about what a good life is, in the 1950s, it was obviously sort of coming out of America and it's all about driving. Um, so you get the evolution of these extraordinary landscapes uh, that you could barely call a city, really. Um, you certainly can't walk in them. And of course, they're all built on rich farmland because they're next to the old urban cores. You get the first city centres like the Southdale Centre in Minnesota, Um, which is like a refrigerated city centre where people were happy to kind of walk for 10 times further than they would in a normal city, and the denaturing of food to survive the new logistical systems. So it's the beginning of our profound modern disassociation with food and the removal of food from the centre of the city. So we start to see, uh, for example, eviscerated cities, food, um, deserts like in this map in New York where the red areas like the Bronx and Harlem up here, or Eastern Brooklyn are all about areas where you have to walk hundreds of meters to get any form of fresh food at all. Uh, And they're all the poor districts and areas of high criminality and so on. So food is no longer going to people. It's going to where the money is effectively like downtown Manhattan and so on. And, um, (laughs) Um, And we built our society on this idea of cheap food, but it doesn't actually exist. And here are some of the externalities and I hope you can just, Absorb this information, climate change, gases, degraded farmland, huge amount of freshwater use, diet-related disease, a third of the grain harvest going to animals, eutrophication, from which is p- pollution uh, through excess nitrogen in lakes from uh, chemical runoff, food waste, huge amounts of energy going into very little uh, gain and uh, biodiversity loss and sixth mass extinction. So we are really, this was the crisis we were facing until COVID, that the world was turning into a hamburger, that the Western model was going global. It's all about salt, sugar, and fat. It destroys the landscape. It's destroying us. And of course, now on top of it, we've got this other crisis, which I find really interesting to kind of compare and contrast, because basically it's showing us many things that were already evident if you were looking. One is that we're in this globally, Two is that our relationship with nature is, uh, shall we say, out of kilter, to put it politely. And three, that we need a, a completely different way of thinking about how we live and what local resilience means. So we're seeing elements of fragility. I just have to ask, I've, I'm terribly behind in this talk. Could I have another five minutes and I'll go really rapidly? Okay, because half an hour is very difficult when you're trying to cover all you of can, the-
0: you. You can have 10
2: minutes. I'm gonna say okay. keep going,
1: honestly. This is so fascinating. Keep going.
2: Okay, Britt, thank you. Bless you. I am going incredibly fast, but it's not fast enough. Okay. So thank you. Um so back back to the story. So so what COVID is revealing to us, for example, is that um you some of you may have seen these pictures in India when the lockdown was announced, forty five million uh, city dwellers were in fact rural drug dwellers. They had very precarious existence in the city. And this is pictures of them all desperately trying to get home again, because really the countryside was where they lived. They were try- in the city to try and earn money. We see, we're sort of discovering that, you know, the fact that zoonotic pandemics appear to be part of our present now is to do with our, as I say, out of balance relationship with nature, It's partly to do with the reduction in our biodiversity, but it's also to do with the fact we're encroaching on parts of wilderness where we've never been before and there's nasties lurking and and they can jump to us because we've weakened the boundary, effectively, that the richness that might have protected us, just like Albert Howard was talking about the soil. You know, I love this uh, extraordinary image from Bangkok of of food delivery drivers socially distancing while they wait to pick up other people's dinner. You know, you can see, again, the sort of the, the social divisions that exist in society. Some people can afford to stay at home and get fed. Others can't. Uh, and, of course, you've heard about the fact that we're 90,000 Romanians short of a picnic when it comes to actually picking our vegetables out of the ground. So, you know, nation and, and this was very obvious already in Brexit. But, I mean, it's kind of, um, it's just become much more urgently visible to people. The fact that the food system depends on all of these kind of trade-offs and actually not valuing the fact that we need to eat Um, so we don't have people prepared to pull food out of the ground in our own country. Um, But of course, COVID has also shown us very, very interesting responses to to the crisis. There's an explosion of new neighbourliness, people kind of baking bread and leaving each other's doorsteps. Uh, the shock of families actually spending time at home and working out that it can be quite nice. And I do know that there's very dark stories as well. It's not all lovely-dovely, let's 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 bake cakes and read Homer. But nevertheless, you know, a good life that can be predicated on not rushing around and not consuming endlessly, apart from the one thing, of course, we all have to consume every day, which is food. New networks springing up, food networks, because basically, you know, the closing of restaurants has just destroyed, you know, about a third of the food chain and producers desperately reaching out and wanting to uh, go directly to consumers. And many, many networks are springing up almost overnight, which I find really fascinating. In fact, I call it disaster democracy, uh, which is a kind of counterpoint to Naomi Klein's disaster capitalism. So, you know, when, when normal systems are disrupted, something else fills the void. And the, the key is filling the void with good stuff. That's what we need to do as designers and developers and thinkers. And, of course, a rediscovery of growing your own. What all this says to me, and I love this quote from Cedric Price, is that we've been on this kind of roller coaster, 12,000-year journey with food. We've discovered how to live in cities. You know, we've we've sort of, if you were, ceded responsibility for feeding us to people who we don't see and don't value. Um, And we've been leading this good life, apparently, except it turns out it was never a good life and it wasn't making us happy and it was destroying the planet. So to use Cedric Price's wonderful quote, technology is the answer, but what was the question? And I really think this is the missing part. And this is where... For me, food is an amazing tool for developers and for designers and architects, because it's the missing part of the question of how we should live. And in fact, if you think about it, the ultimate question we need to ask hasn't changed. It's still what is a good life. And it's still, again, to go back to Aristotle, what is a good life for political animals? You can only answer this question in the context of society and nature. Um, And it's very interesting, again, if you look at utopian models through history, they all intuitively know this, although they don't necessarily put it in those terms. (coughs) Excuse me. So, as I said, Plato and Aristotle obsessed with the size of the city and oikonomia. Thomas More sort of critiquing London, saying it's got too big and saying that, you know, we need to go back to a series of semi-independent city-states networked together and everyone in utopia is obsessed with food, by the way. They all love farming and they all grow vegetables in their back gardens. And Ebenezer Howard, which is really Thomas Morewood Railways, and, and Ebenezer Howard called the Garden City, his town country magnet. He's saying, how can we balance it so that people have one foot in the town? His definition of a, of a, enough density, by the way, was that you could get together a decent, decent symphony orchestra. And I find it really interesting that one of the first things that happened after COVID was the London Symphony Orchestra getting together and playing Beethoven kind of separately in their little Zoom boxes. You know, we need this stuff, we need these scales. But at the same time, you're never more than a short walk away from countryside. Um, Now, of course, we know Utopia can't exist. I remember discovering this and getting really depressed uh, because it can either mean, mean a good place or no place, but it is our greatest tradition of thinking in a multidisciplinary way about how we should live. And if it can't exist, it struck me that we need a practical alternative. And this was the moment, probably about 12 years ago now, uh, that I invented this word, sitopia. It just means food place, from the Greek sitos for food and topos for place. But we live in a world shaped by food. Our bodies, our habitats, our economies, our politics, our cities, our landscapes, our ecology, our climate are all shaped by the way we eat. Uh, And so if we take this idea and put it centrally, then we have an absolutely amazing multidisciplinary way of thinking about how we live and actually doing something about it. It's a kind of practical alternative to utopia. So if we look at these pictures, for example, of how different people around the world eat, uh, we can see immediately, you know, this is America's the home of the plastic, uh, the plastic and packaged uh, and denatured food. The special relationship means we're not far behind in Britain. You know, in Egypt, they don't need to be told to eat their five or seven a day or whatever it is now. Ten, I think it's gone up to something because that's actually what they do eat. But their families are much bigger, interestingly. And in Italy, yes, they have a wonderful diet, but there's a sort of sinister march of the soda pops on the back window. So from pictures like this, we can extrapolate to landscapes. Do we allow cows to eat grass, which is what they would evolve to do, which is why we co-evolve with them, because we can't eat grass? Or do, that's a CAFO, a concentrated animal feeding operation with 160,000 cows, being fed on grain, getting sick, being comfortable with antibiotics. Mm. Okay, do we go into the middle of the city and animate space through our need to eat food? Historically, is always animated public space in the city. Or do we leave the city in the name of efficiency or just phone up delivery and expect our food to come in the, on a magic carpet? Do we still do what it took to civilise us in the first place, which is gather around uh, a table and share food and and learn how to be civilised and talk to one another? Or do we eat food on the hop because it's not important enough? And and before Covid, the astonishing stat was that 20% of meals in America were being eaten in a car, which I think just makes you question where society is going. But my point is that all of these decisions about how we eat feed through a sort of sieve into an image of a good life. For me, it's obvious that uh, food, I mean, I often like to say that food consists of living things that we kill so we can live. Because that's actually what it is. And if you put it like that, uh, it becomes obvious there can't be such a thing as cheap food. We've created the artificial illusion of it by externalising its true costs. It's only in crisis and COVID is yet another example when we see its true value. So London during the war, uh, Havana after the fall of the Soviet Union, Detroit after the the cars left, people immediately, food just immediately presents itself as the most important thing. And new food networks grow up very, very quickly. So the trick is to understand this without there having to be a crisis on. Of course, the crisis is called ecological destruction. It's already there, just wasn't visible enough for most of us to hop onto the new ship, the Good Ship Plan B. It's very, very clear to me that we need to be working with nature to feed ourselves and not against it. There are many, many very important and interesting models of how to do this. I guess the headline is organic. It's also partly permacultural but Albert Howard was right. And I think, you know, COVID is making that even clearer. We, if you understand, as I now do, um, that basically a society and a food system map onto each other directly, then if we want to live in a democracy, we can't have a monopolistic food system. This seems very clear. So you can't, and as Christopher Alexander famously wrote an essay in 1965 called The City is Not a Tree, which some of you may know, it was a critique of modern city planning. This in a way, I'm saying a food system is not a tree either, but actually at the moment our food system is, it's one directional um, and it's monopolistic. So 110 supermarket buying desks, for example, make the difference between the relationship between 3 million farmers and 160 million in six European nations studied uh, in this study. So we need to democratise food by joining the roots of the branches, This obviously reduces the monopolistic power of the trunk. This is called co-producing, this is Carlo Petrini's term. It's about going out to meet the producers halfway, not just being passive consumers. So for example, community supported agriculture, which is paying your farmer ahead of time to feed you. Food co-ops like Park Slope, where you basically work in a thing that looks like a supermarket, but it's not. and You do direct deals with farmers. Uh, organic box schemes, I don't have to explain, guerrilla gardening, you've probably heard of, people just planting the city. Um, I call this economics, or utopian economics indeed. I think you know we need to revisit this idea of what a kind of stable, local, resilient economy looks like based on food and based on regionality and seasonality. And this is, involves making space for food in the city And infrastructure that joins city to country. So yes, urban food growing, although if you remember your Fontunan, which probably seems like 10 years ago, um, you know, it really only makes sense for for fruit and veg. It doesn't make sense for grain and obviously meat if we're going to be eating it. And that's a long discussion we can get into. Embedding food in city governance, uh, farmers markets, infrastructure like this local abattoir in upstate New York, food hubs like this one in Chichester, The idea of patchwork farms, that even though you can't grow all the food for the city in the city, that's the urban paradox, we can grow as much as we can, and then we can sort of maximise local and seasonal, regional, and then last but not least, fair trade globally. So it's a sequential model. As I said, you know, the railways meant that we kind of said goodbye to geography. I think we're now living in a neo-geographical age when we have to consider geography again. Luckily, we've got thousands of years of very, very interesting models we can draw on and also very interesting thinking. So obviously the utopian train of thought is is recognizing geography. And a phrase I've come up with that I think sort of suits the problem is what I call maximizing the urban-rural interface. Because if you think about the ideal landscape for a, a political animal, It's with one foot in nature and one foot in the city. And this is really what we need at every scale. So it can be at the scale of, you know, herbs on your window box in your kitchen. That's at the scale of a house. It can be at the scale of, you know, an orchard in a neighborhood. It can be at the scale of a city in its region. So, for example, Patrick Geddes' idea of uh, preserving bands of countryside. So when the city evolves, it evolves in a star shape. That obviously gives you a very long, urban-rural interface, so that's good. It's a kind of permacultural idea, actually. Post-fitting existing cities with continuous productive urban landscapes, as Bern and Bourgen are proposing, where you get ribbons of productive uh, landscapes that are going out into the countryside. Interrogating the latent productivity of a region, as this study of Urban Design Lab does for New York, and then saying, okay, what could we grow, and then how can we bring it to the city? And then schemes like this one, MVRDV's, Almere Osterwold's master plan, where basically you, you can choose to incorporate food growing in your house or your office. So they're sort of deliberately bringing food into the planning process. To go back to where I began, I believe that the best metaphor for a good society is one in which everybody eats well, because you can't eat well and live badly. Um, and, and so food is this kind of fantastic metaphor. It is actually life, and it's a metaphor for life, so close to life you may as well call it life. So rather than being all abstract, like what is a good life, you know, if you just say what is good food, and how can we bring good food to everyone, and how can we share through food, because we're very, very good at it. I mean, you don't kind of reach across the table and say, I'll oh, have everything off your plate, thank you very much. No, 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 we don't do this. But that's precisely what we do with money. So with a Zootopian economics, we will share much better. So reinvesting the true value of food into food is my proposal. And then thinking through food, how we can build a better Zootopia, because a good Zootopia um, is very close to utopia. Everything follows through food. So it's about using food as a connective tool to imagine a better world, to ask what is a good life and to move practically and incrementally and collaboratively towards it and thank you very much for letting me run a little bit over there's a lot more about it in here thanks a lot
0: brilliant thank you so much Carolyn. that was really fascinating and i there's been lots of comments coming across one of the things i want to share is that we did a poll of about i'm going to end the poll so i can give you the results hopefully it doesn't disappear yeah um of people who have been uh listening today um, and uh, the first question was, has COVID-19 made you feel differently about food? 85% of the people who responded, which is 184 people, um, said yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, 6% said maybe. 8% said no. And two people said they don't know. Um, will the COVID-19 pandemic change the way you design or think about designing places with regard to food? 65% said Yes. 23% said maybe, 2% said no, 12% said I don't know.
2: Wow. I mean, that is amazing. You know, And also slightly doesn't
0: surprise me, but is also very encouraging.
2: Mm-hmm. Very encouraging.
0: Uh, and there's um, two more questions. During this particular pandemic, how much of your day do you spend thinking about food, either cooking or access to it? Uh, more than once per waking hour. <laughs> <laughs> is 13%, sorry, the the biggest one is 24%, once every two hours, Uh, once every three hours is next, three times a day, then more than once per waking hour, Um, and of course the smallest is I don't think about food much or once a day, so clearly a frequent preoccupation.
1: Once every two hours, I don't believe that for a second, every (laughs) five minutes in my house, I tell you.
0: (laughs) And then finally, do you feel like you are eating more than usual during the COVID-19 lockdown? I, I ask this question because lots of people have been anecdotally saying, oh, I eat all day. But actually, um, uh, 37% of people said yes, and 52% people said no, and 11% said they're not sure. So I think this, th- there is this sense, and maybe that's a good place for us to start, which is an interesting um, Uh, spot which is uh, the relationship between food and comfort is something that we've Mm. we've talked about and you've talked about people feeling uh like they kind of take for granted the our easy access to food but also (laughs) is there something about our um using food to make ourselves feel better is there any connection to that as well
2: yeah absolutely i mean for me you know as i said right at the beginning um I think food is so omnipresent in our world that it's very difficult to see it. You know, as I said, I saw that Lorenzetti painting, which is just so obviously all about food, and I didn't see food at all. You know, and and I looked quite hard at it. In fact, I fell in love with the painting, but I still didn't get what it was about, which I find really interesting. And I should have said, I mean, the fact that it's the allegory, of the effects of good government, I find really interesting as well. Because I think we've kind of, lured ourselves into this illusion that we've solved the, the food problem and we really really have not and and, and because it's so profoundly in the wrong place that if we turn it upside down it's it's a really really powerful thing to do because everything changes in the way you see the world and yet it's practical you know so I often say that food is as complex as life but it's as simple as a plate of soup in front of you and that's a very very beautiful thing in terms of a tool it's it's incredibly approachable and it's infinitely flexible and and that's an amazingly powerful thing to have at your disposal as it were
0: so we have some questions that have been um put across which i'll i'll relay to you and then also if anyone else wants to put some questions into the into the q a or vote them up or down but a couple of the questions that have come through have been in relation to brexit and brexit negotiations should the new understanding of food? chains or could it shape the direction of brexit negotiations in general if you want to talk about brexit as the perhaps the next crisis to effect you talked about trade being essential to feeding the city
2: yeah i mean i i usually in my little comparison of london and paris i say you know this explains brexit even though i also then say but nothing explains brexit um uh, but anyway, well, lots of things do. But, you know, because London was able to feed itself so easily, you know, it, it, it kind of got this free trade mentality and actually Adam Smith, just it, when he was sort of working on the wealth of nations, he actually visited Paris and spoke to the physiocrats there who were trying to sort of work out how to ease up the kind of the Parisian food trade because it was such a nightmare feeding Paris. And he actually writes about, you know, how a city that has access to a navigable river and to other markets can grow really rich in relation to one that's landlocked. You know, and I think Britain does have this free trade mentality and this, this weird idea that we don't need Europe, you know, because, oh, we're global and all this kind of stuff. And I mean, I'm fascinated because, you know, for me, COVID is just highlighting many, many things that were already blindingly obvious before, but were being ignored for ideological reasons and you know the fact that of course we have to stay incredibly close to Europe, you know, may not suit sort of extreme Brexiteers ideologically, but it just it's just so obvious. (laughs) I mean, you know the famous Dominic Raab moment where he kind of goes, Oh, I hadn't quite understood quite how important this relationship between Dover and Calais was, and you kind of think, oh you know, you ever looked at a map <laughs> um so uh, yeah i mean at the moment they're holding close to the ideological you know the sails are tight and we're still going there and we're going to leave and all the rest of it i think it's it's back you know behind the scenes is going to force them them i say the hard brexiteers to sort of take a more reasonable view i really really hope so i mean you know the idea that um You know, COVID on top of Brexit is not enough to make it clear that we need to look at this thing as a sort of geographical problem as well as a political one. Uh, You know, if if it's not obvious by now, I I really despair. Uh, No, I don't despair. I never despair. But um,
0: you you talk about
2: change minds. Yeah.
0: You talk about this idea of the, the former ideas around the geographic barriers of the city and land use and, and self-sufficiency. And I guess that is a question that's kind of come up related to Brexit, but we can look at the kind of closing of borders through the, the coronavirus crisis. Is it possible for cities to and, and countries to become self-sufficient?
2: This is really, I mean, I have never studied systems thinking, so I don't sort of, I don't pretend to be an expert in systems thinking, but this is very much a systems thinking problem. And one of the beautiful things about food is that it turns you into a systems thinker without you even realising. So, I mean, one of the models I didn't have time to talk about today, which I, but I, th- I find it really fascinating, is actually based on the Fontounen diagram I showed you earlier. And it's actually a woman called Julie Brown who has a, 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 a organic bulk scheme in Hackney. And her thing is that, yes, you can't feed the city from within itself, but what you can do is you can have these provisioning rings, if you like, notional provisioning rings. And you can say, okay, let's grow as much as we can in the city. Let's grow as much as we can in the Southeast of England. Let's grow as much as we can in the rest of the UK, blah, blah, Europe, blah, blah, the rest of the world. And then, you know, try to sort of, Expand those inner rings but through education, through you know better growing techniques, through more effective uh, infrastructure, through you know different supply networks, and so on. So incrementally over time, you can grow more and more locally, regionally, and seasonally. But of course, you, you keep trading globally as well. Um, but it's just an attitude, and you know I think this also needs to be mirrored by our politics because it seems very clear to me that going forward we need much stronger local government and also international global governance you know, to deal with the problems we face. So I often use Eleanor Ostrom's kind of commons model. She's, you know, she, she won a Nobel Prize for her work in the commons. She talks about nested governance. So basically it's the idea that you put as much agency locally as you can, but then you have these other bands of governance that you can refer to, but, it, you know, it's the idea that it is bottom up with top down assistance, if you like. You know, and I think it, those are the kinds of models in food and in, you know, kind of the sorts of places we're designing to be resilient in the future also need this. You know, I think the question of what is a landscape for human flourishing is a really good question to ask.
0: That's- there's a question, too, and I know you mentioned uh, the Hackney, I imagine, growing communities. Actually, I think someone from growing <laughs> communities is, is actually here with us today. Um, but uh, one of the, the top question that's been voted up is can we, um, can we feed the planet 7 billion people using organic growing, um, yeah. and what are your thoughts? How do you respond to people who say it's impossible to feed um, the planet's growing population organically?
2: I, I devote about half a chapter in my book to this, and my chapters are quite big, so that's quite a lot of space. Um, the answer okay, so I've read a lot of research on this, and um, where, where the consensus seems to be that if we halve the amount of uh, meat and dairy we eat globally. Um, And and of course, that might mean that some people in the global South eat more than they could do at the moment. But we in the West eat a lot less. But anyway, halve it globally. Halve the amount of food waste globally, which is actually very doable. Um, Then we can feed the world 80% organically without any increase in current farmland. And and that's just, you know, obviously there's many, many. and, And this is assuming you know, of all the projections of, of what the effect that climate change is going to have on productivity in different parts of the world, this is taking the middle of those. So obviously, there's many ways you can sort of, you know, jiggle this around. But the, the main problem, so, so um, the answer is we can get really close. And also, the main problem is the nitrogen gap. So I briefly mentioned the Harbour-Bosch process, which is this process through which we artificially fix nitrogen, atmospheric nitrogen. Nitrogen is the gap and 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 basically we don't have quite enough nitrogen at the moment to do it all organically but also many people have pointed out that if any money whatsoever was invested in how we might actually increase nitrogen uptake with organic farming then we could close the gap really quickly it's just none of the money research money's in there because all the research money is in how to earn enormous profits by selling people GM seeds and all the rest of it so so I, I think it's got to be the goal. I mean, if you you know if you read the literature on chemical farming as opposed to non-chemical, it's a no-brainer. We have to go to non-chemical. Uh, this is because of the the, the um, you know the mass extinction that's already underway. For example, so we can get very close and we can get all the way there probably in a decade. Um, we need more people farming and not fewer. We need land reform. We need lots of big things to do this. But I think once you've sort of done the thinking, you've realized it, it's, it's not a choice. We absolutely have to do this. Uh, then we can start motoring. And, and a good life, of course, comes out of it because if we value food, then working in food becomes a good life, becomes a good job. I mean, again, in longer talks, I often show a block of cheese in 1970 which is literally all you could get was a sort of thing that looked like a breeze block and it was called cheddar and then a, a british artisanal cheese shop today where there's something like 650 varieties of cheese and by the way they're all struggling because they normally supply restaurants so we need to be buying directly from independent cheese makers right now to keep, so they survive this lockdown uh, but yes we we can get very close as the answer and i think we have to go that way
0: you talk about the the kind of um the fact that we've grown accustomed and hooked on cheap food, uh, and on the flip side, the kind of organic food and the the small producing cheese is more expensive. So how how do we find um, a way to democratize the access to good good food? Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, it's very interesting. If you go to a country like Italy, I mean, Italy is sort of, you know, it's it's in transition. It's going from a a very, very sort of locally peasant-based kind of local food culture based, you know, to to horribly to where we are because it's where everyone's going. But there's kind of somewhere on that trajectory. Everybody eats really, really well. Everybody really values food. They just value it. So they just decide that's where we're going to put our money. And it doesn't have to be expensive. I mean... You know, in our country, it's expensive because it's it's a niche, you know. So the quantities aren't big, and you know that you're not one of sort of thousands of people doing it. You're just one in a region. So you know, it's just we're not set up to to kind of support these people in in kind of the the, the everyday sort of processes that a traditional food culture would have done. So I mean, for me, I mean, I guess I'm I'm, I'm I am trying to constantly turn many of our assumptions on their head. I mean, so the question of what is a good life is a really important one to ask. And I think that's one that COVID is really partly helping us answer the things that people are really valuing in, 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 COVID, in lockdown. And again, I say I know there are some real horror stories of people locked up in tiny flats with abusive partners. You know, there's bad stuff going on as well. But you know, the good stuff is that people are discovering that taking time, noticing the seasons, being in nature, spending actual time with their kids, cooking at home, growing food, making stuff, reading, all of these things that are about not dashing around like mad things really make us happy. And ironically, they're the same set of things that when people are close to death, you know, sorry to sound a bit gloomy, but, you know, I mean, I'm very, very um, enamoured of the Stoics, who basically say the clue to a good life is to accept you're going to die one day. Now, the, the reason this matters is once you accept the fact that life is limited, you value it hugely. You know, you live every day as if it's your last and you carpe diem, you seize the day and you live in the moment, which, of course, is precisely what Buddhism tries to make us do. You know, I often say Stoics are like Western Buddhists, you know. So, um, so basically, you know, the, the clues to this, um, this good life. Yes, we need to pay, pay more for food. But we can also make more food. You know, I mean, I spend less on food than most of the people I know. Um, But that's because I very rarely eat out because I just love buying really, really high quality ingredients and cooking with them. You know, it's... And also, I mean, another major question is, you know, oh, well, if we make food be more expensive, then what about all the people at the bottom of society who can't afford it? Well, my answer to that, again, is, Well, what about all the people at the bottom of society who can't afford it? Surely that is the problem. Surely the problem is that we don't pay key workers enough, you know, sort of all the people who work their socks off. Again, COVID, oh, gosh, nurses and hospital porters and dustmen are actually rather useful, duh. You know, as if this wasn't obvious before. So we need a different economic structure. We need a much more equal society. We need a society in which everybody can eat well. Carolyn,
0: I want to ask you, I know um, people, there are a couple of questions here, but one of the questions that's popped up, and I I know you address it in the book, um, is some of the ideas for land use reform, and the way that land is valued, and who owns it, and that kind of rental model. So I wanted to address that, and I also wanted to ask you a really important question, which is, you know, we've got a number of architects and developers with us today looking at developing huge bits of land, uh, I mean, what, what would you say to them about, uh, about that, uh, that connection between the home, the creation of a cluster of sometimes, sometimes thousands of homes um, and food?
2: Could I do the last one first? Because that's, that's really exciting to me, the idea of talking to someone who's about to design a huge tract of something or other. I mean, I think the question you just need to ask, because it's just a useful, as I say, tool to what you might normally ask is, Okay, how are all these pe- all the people inhabiting this this development, whatever it is, how ha- how are they going to eat? Where is their food going to come from? Where are they- how are they going to meet other people through food? What kind of landscapes is the fact that they're eating going to create? What kind of jobs are the fact that they're get- they're eating going to create? What kind of spaces can I make for food in this development so people can come together and have all that amazing social interaction through food? And you just, you just follow the food and, and basically food, wherever it shows up, and it will show up because we all eat every day, it has a direct material impact on ecology, physiology, economy, politics, you know, and, and good life. So just draw the food map. And, and, and one other thing I really want to say is that this idea of maximizing the urban rural interface, it's like a fractal. It, it, at every scale it matters. So as I said earlier, the, the, the herbs on the windowsill, you know, is maximizing the urban-rural interface. The community garden, you know, with fruit trees is doing it. The sort of, the city and its region is doing it. And it's, it's all repeating, it all like this permacultural idea, that it's at this point where, you know, nature and society, nature and urban, you know, rural and urban uh, interact we are happiest as political animals because we need our little feet in both you know which is why everyone wants a house with a garden or everyone wants a flat with a balcony or you know so so, but also at a bigger scale I mean it's amazing how many utopian projects also include communal areas communal dining rooms for example you know or, or communal growing spaces and it scales up and it scales up Martin,
0: Martin, I think it'd be good to bring you in here as our developer representative. I mean, like, you know, everyone does want a garden and a balcony. They don't all get them these days mm -hmm. in in urban, certainly in dense. But then, sorry, go ahead.
2: Mm. (laughs) Doesn't have to be individual. It can be communal as well. Yeah. So how
0: much are you thinking about, I mean, you know, we see a lot of developments get finished, they've got an artisanal bakery and maybe a market if you're, if you're kind of lucky or this idea of common restaurants, Mm. but uh, how, how are you thinking these days and is it changing about food at the center of building community?
1: Yes, of course, it's changing, it, changing hugely. And um, but you, what Carolyn says is the most important is how are you thinking about everybody who's going to live in a place? You know, we are very focused on developing our places and understanding that the communities we build have to be mixed communities, communities with people of all incomes and then not sticking the lower income people in a particular building around the back. You know, that's a very sophisticated conversation that goes on in our our, um, thinking. So mixed communities of living, mixed communities of working, and mixed communities of leisure and people who don't work. Uh, It's not enough though, just to think about where they're gonna sleep. You know, As Carolyn quite rightly says, it's, you have to think about what happens to them all through every day in their life. So where are they spending their leisure time? Where are they spending their working time? We need to understand where the people who we're going to house in our developments work. Do they work very closely to where they're going to live or do they work a long way away? And not just imagine that that's somebody else's problem to deal with the transport infrastructure that's required to shift those people from one place to another. And, and right at the heart of that conversation is about where those people are going to eat. Where are, they, where are they going to actually eat every day? And where are they going to buy the food from in order to eat? So are they going to eat in their home? Are they going to eat out from their home all the time, half the time, some of the time? And where does the food come from? And that's not about artisan bakeries. It's about food that's available for everybody. So in our schemes which are typically large and typically on sites where Uh, there has been no activity for a long time so we typically start with empty undeveloped sites like our site at Mayfield in Manchester. We will typically start with food so we'll typically introduce some food into those places way before we even start drawing plans of what's going to happen on them in the longer term because that's the easiest way to engage with people and to understand to be able to have conversation with them. So the first thing we did on our site in Manchester which is 25 acres of uh, of inner city um, land, was to put a food ser- service place and it, it was there for two, two, two bit years. Uh, we've done it in London, we're doing it in Manchester. So first off it's a good way of starting a conversation, secondly it's a way of learning and understanding, so if you put some sort of food service place, whether it's a market or whether it's a restaurant st- style operation when you see the amount of people who suddenly flock to a place where they would typically tell you beforehand, I'll never go to that place in a million years. It's dangerous and miserable and empty and horrible. Suddenly you put food uh, there. It's not that anymore. It's a place where people want to be. So we first off use it as a tool, but secondly, then to understand people's response to it. And so what does that teach us about what people want to do years ago when I started my, um, Career in property. I worked at the old Truman Brewery in Brick Lane, and um, that was at a time when as a, the people who owned the site then were not property developers. They just bought the property and were very slowly and gradually, without a lot of money, attempting to put, put some of the empty buildings back into use. One of the buildings had been um, where the original furnace was for the for the um, to produce the power for the site. And it was a big, empty building with a big chimney in the middle of it. And it was full of crap and had not been used for decades. And we weren't sure what to do with it. And so we just opened it, cleaned it out, opened the doors. And because it was a very sunny building, because it had a very big glass ceiling over half the building, on a Saturday morning, people came and sat in there on the floor in an empty building and took their sandwiches and ate. And so it became clear that people wanted to eat in that building because it was a nice place to eat. And ever since then, it's been a kind of um, street food type venue. It was a restaurant for a while, and now it's a street food venue. And so the the people who visited that place, before it was anything, told us what they wanted it to be. Uh, That's where that conversation begins for for me.
0: Uh, Callan, there's a couple of questions here about COVID-19. Mm -hmm. about people not being able to come together. Martin's talking about stuff Mm -hmm. that we love in cities, which is to go to a crowded marketplace, to sit next to people, to eat food uh, together. And we're all kind of in our uh, semi-isolation right now, thinking um, for this temporary new normal uh what does that what does that look what does that look like when it comes to food and there's another question I'm going to give you two at once because um because you might might pick and choose the other one that's coming around there's a few questions around density of cities size of cities and whether it's really feasible to um to increase food production Within them, So there's a question around vertical gardens and roofs, which I know you address in the book. There's a question around, um, um, you know, networks of community gardens, if we all grow a bit more uh, on our tiny plots, is that a viable way of increasing food production? Or is it just too small? So all of these m- kind of marginal uh, inner city, um, do they make a difference? Uh, and w- what's your view on that?
2: I, I'm going to try and answer all those and I'm going to briefly go back to the question I failed to answer the previous time about um, land, land. land, which I think is really, really interesting. When I was researching the Garden City, which to me is still a really, really interesting model, there were two key um, influences on Ebenezer Howard. The first was Peter Pricot, Kropotkin, who is an anarchist. Um, and, 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 and so there's a whole world of you know, anarchist thinking about ownership, which I find really interesting, the, base, the the premise of it is essentially that all land belongs to everybody, so it belongs to society. So if you want sole use of it, you pay a rent to society. I and mean, of course, we already do this to an extent because we have rates and stuff. But I mean, the other um, the other influence was Henry George. Uh, sorry, I mean the, 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 Kropotkin. The other thing that he said was that uh, capitalism is based on division of labour, which tends to make turn people into tiny little cogs in a in a system, but that doesn't make us happy. So we need an economy and, and, and a, an approach to design that actually is aimed at making people fully rounded humans. Um, and so he wrote this book called Fields, Factories and Workshops, which is about a sort of a distribution of, of you know, stuff on the landscape, which again allows, you know, somebody to, if, if, as it were, grow cabbages in the morning and, and build furniture in the afternoon, which I find a really interesting concept. And of course, then leads directly into things like live work Um, communities, you know, and that sort of world. So that's one package of it. The other half was Henry George, very, very interesting American economist who he saw the building of the railways and what it did to inequality, basically. He wrote a a book called Progress and Poverty. And he said, the thing is that, you know, sort of land ownership is fairly arbitrary. And if if you're lucky enough to own a bit of land next to where they build the railway, you get incredibly rich having done nothing, you know. So basically the rise in land values ought to be owned by society and not by individual landowners. And again, he has this idea of land value tax, which may scare the heebie-jeebies out of developers listening, but, but in essence, it's really, it's a very democratic idea. It's not saying you can't make any profit out of land, but it's actually saying that, you know, if, if land is more expensive, then more of a tax ought to go to the society in order to you know, run communal uh, services and so on. And you can, of course, judge the level of it, but it has a tendency of sort of flattening out really extreme land values, which interestingly then goes directly into the question of the density of the city. Because if uh, urban owners... I mean, I believe in dense cities. You know, I believe in dense cities. And if you like dense countryside, if that makes any sense as well... Um, so um, basically, if, if you have to pay a, a sort of a tax for the land that you earn in the city, then you have an incentive to develop it, you know, so to build, which is a good thing. Um, but obviously, we also need open space in the city. But then that, that becomes a planning issue. Um, you know, I mean, if if all we ever did in London, for example, was go according to what could be earned out of a piece of land, there wouldn't be a park left, you know, so... At a certain point, you have to protect certain areas for, for other uses. Um, in terms of our need to eat together it 's really fundamental. I write about this in the book I mean it 's very interesting. we need touch actually you know we need to physical contact and and you know it 's been shown that if you eat the same food as other people and you share food and you pass the bread and everything, then all sorts of hormonal reactions take place that you know, i mean i 'm sure we 've all been doing it on zoom. And it's, it's kind of not, the, it's not the same, but in a way that you can't quite tell. And it's because it, actually we do need tactile, tactile company as well as just a, a talking head on a screen. So, I mean, I think, you know, COVID again, as I say, is just making very, very evident what we really need as humans, as animals, as political animals to thrive. And of course, you know, the shared meal is really, is how we evolved as a species and we respond to it extremely powerfully. Um, And it's no accident that lots of zooms are being arranged around mealtimes and stuff. So you can at least, I mean, you know, at Easter, I don't know if anybody else did this, but you know, with some friends I said, okay, let's cook lamb. I did eat lamb, you know, sort of celebratory uh, lamb and and potatoes and let's have leeks and cheese sauce. And we all tried to cook the same thing and go, oh, look, here's mine. I mean, it's completely insane. But, but, you know, just trying to replicate, um, you know, what you would normally do. Um, In terms of growing food in cities, I mean, again, I refer you back to the urban paradox, which is the fact that you can't grow all the food for a city within it, or it just wouldn't be a city. It would be something else, you know. (laughs) It would be, in fact, you know, a city-state of some kind, um, and it would have to be vast. Um, You know, and economically, you know, you can't put grain... I mean, you know, grain in tower blocks just doesn't make any sense at all. So vertical farms, which I I do realise I probably should have spoken a bit more about today, but basically they are replicating the high value market garden strip that used to exist around cities. That's what they replicate. It's luxury food. You know, that's where the economics are. It's microgreens greens that is then sold to restaurants and high end shops like Whole Food. But what they don't do is they don't allow you to just wander in and feel a bit of nature. You know, you have to get into white wellies and hair nets to get into a vertical farm. So for me, a lot of the value of growing food in the city is actually us, you know, urban animals encountering nature. So going into a garden, picking fruit off a tree and so on, which of course, you know, other forms of community garden and so on do much better than vertical farms do. And so, so about
0: that kind of community allotment model, which which you're saying could yeah. not feed the city because the city yeah. won't be big enough. Yeah. But but. but, but, but it,
2: yeah, I mean, it's, you know, and the green belt, you know, for a city like London is a really obvious one. So, of course, the green belt came out of the garden city idea that you limit the size of a city and you have productive hinterland around. But then actually, we should have access to that space. You know, city dwellers, as I'm sure you know, you know, the East End used to empty out and go hot picking for two to, for two weeks every year. That was the annual holiday. You know, I love that kind of model of, city and it's very historically strong and of course it happens in places like russia i mean you know 60 percent of russians have a dacha which is basically a sort of a slightly souped up allotment that isn't just kind of you know in your local railway cutting but is actually maybe 50 miles out of the city and they all they spend half the summer there growing stuff and just having barbecues. I mean, it's completely brilliant. So
0: what would what would that do to us as as humans if we if we you know whether it's our window box or our garden? Maybe we are com- contributing only in a small way to access to food but what is it what is it doing for us culturally and is is covid an opportunity for that reconnection
2: i I can tell you what it's done to me um so i have a sort of very scientific research um survey of one (laughs) um basically i would never grown a thing until four or five years ago you know i was grew up in central london i mean i only saw a cow when i was about eight years old you know um but but I got access to a roof space on the way up to my flat. Um, and around right about the same time, a, a Danish chef friend of mine showed me um, these amazing Danish pickling cucumbers, uh, which I can actually show you physically, because they're right here. They're like marrows, they're enormous, you know. and. And I grow them on my roof, um, and they're like this big. They're like marrows, big furry marrows. She said they wouldn't grow up a wall. They do grow up a wall incredibly happily. They're like dinosaur salad, they never stop. And I, I grow about 10 kilos of these things a year, and I pickle them and all my friends are obsessed with them, and I'll, I'll try and get you a jar. Um, because you know. it's totally changed my attitude to time because you know in March or something it's like oh I better make sure I get my seeds which I get sent over from Denmark you know because you can't get them here and you know oh I better sort of start clearing out the garden and I better decide what else I'm growing and you know I now live and not not, you know every, every day but I mean according to the season you know between March and about October I have to be watering the plants I have to be harvesting them I have to Order in my special Danish pickling vinegar so I can convert these things into the most delicious pickles on the planet. And it's just, I, I, I literally sit and look at these plants grow and I am in love, I'm in awe of these plants that are just so incredible. They just they just do stuff, they just know how to grow. And when you realise that the whole food system depends on plants, because only they can convert sunlight into nutrients, you know. And I'm just, fin- photosynthesis, and I just... You know, I just, I respect and I'm in awe of the natural world in a way I never was before. I mean, I, I loved nature, but now it's just like visceral. Um, and it just changes everything, just changes everything. It turns you into a proper political animal if you grow your own stuff.
0: So uh, at this point, um, I think we're probably um, approaching 11.30, which is our kind of close time. But uh, I really love that you just showed us your marrows um Martin do you have anything that you've grown that you can show us Martin you, you sorry
1: I'm, I mean, I've got food on my table oh well, that's food, good I have
0: my I have my me. my COVID sourdough and it's within reach so it's just yeah. literally
1: there so I can just do that although you have to put yourself on mute because eating apples when you do this is noisy you know?
0: yeah it is it is noisy so so maybe I'm,
1: less noisy food
0: uh I I need to thank you Carolyn, for what is a fascinating talk. I know the comments that have been coming up, and there are loads of questions that I could also ask you, Um, just saying how uh, fascinating that was, how brilliant, and how you've given lots of inspiration and food for thought. Martin, thank you, you and I, for helping this happen, and Mm -hmm bringing the real world in thank you you and i think for partnering with festival place bite size thank you carolyn for joining us very
2: welcome can i thank you as well you and i think and the developer and also everyone who spent so long with us and thank you very much for inviting me it's been a great
1: pleasure
0: this podcast has been brought to you by the developer produced by simon mercer with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray and you can reach me on Twitter at, at TC Murray.